there's a um, there's a woman in the room, or maybe more than one, who um, I think the Lord is saying that you've had to be a father to your children as well as a mother, and uh, He wants you to know He He sees you, and you're caught in His gaze, and He loves you. Happy Father's Day, sweetheart. Um, good morning, everyone. Good morning. I'm, I'm Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm excited about getting to bring a message to you this morning. Hello to our online community. We love you, and we pray for you. I uh, hope you're all doing uh, well today. Um, we're in the Gospel of Mark, and uh, we, we, we began chapter 10 last week. We're going to dive back into that in a moment. Uh, next week, we'll be into chapter 12, and then the week after, chapter 13, and that'll bring us through uh, our journey through that Gospel. And in the summer, we're going to change uh, uh, directions a little bit. We're going to be looking at one of the letters of Paul. We're going to be preaching through Colossians this summer, which we're looking forward to. And then as we reach the fall and winter of two or three uh, series, I'm excited to be um, uh, presenting to you uh, with uh, the rest of our pastors. So we're looking forward to that. Uh, I just wanted to say before we dive into the passage, uh, next week uh, we're going to have the baptismal tank up here, and we're going to be baptizing at least one person, uh, possibly more than one. And uh, we're really excited about that. And I tell you that for two reasons. One, uh, just to invite you to come because baptism services are great. Um, but the second reason to say is if you have not been baptized and you sense uh, the Spirit prompting you to be baptized, um, and, but you weren't able to make the baptism class that we had or anything like that, um, please let us know. Uh, and if you, you'd like to be baptized next week, there, there's time and there's room and there's space for you to be baptized. Uh, what you would need to do, however, is probably let us know today or tomorrow uh, because we'll need a little bit of time to work with you and to talk about testimony and those kind of things. Uh, so find one of our pastors um, or email us or call us at the office and we'd love to have a chat with you uh, if that's something you're interested uh, in. So looking forward to uh, to that. Uh, last Sunday, I briefly uh, recapped uh, the Gospel of Mark as we talked about what it were, kind of the journey we'd been on. And I talked to you about um, the part that we had reached where Jesus had left the region of Galilee, so his Galilean ministry was over, and he was now on the road south to the city of Jerusalem and his destiny. And as he was making his way towards Jerusalem with his disciples, Jesus continued to say things and do things and go into towns and villages on the way. So he was continuing to both declare the kingdom and implement the kingdom. And one of the things he was doing is he was teaching his disciples a lot as well. And Jesus did that uh, in a number of different ways. Sometimes he would just overtly teach them stuff. Other times he'd send them out to participate in the kingdom declaration that he was bringing, and then he would debrief with them and teach them in that way. And other times certain things would present themselves, and it was a teaching opportunity for Jesus to use with them. And that's what happened last Sunday. The uh, rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I'm interested, Rabbi. I'm interested in what other people say. I'm interested in what you have to say. And, and Jesus says, well, do this, this, and this. And he said, I've done all of those things since I was, I was young. And he says, yeah, but there's one more thing. You need to sell your possessions, give to the poor, and then come follow me. And uh, the rich young ruler didn't like that, presumably because he had lots of possessions. And, and Jesus used that as a teaching opportunity with his disciples then 
about the powerlessness of humanity when it comes to the kingdom and entering the kingdom versus the power of God to make all things uh, possible. So that's what we looked at uh, last week. And uh, if you like to follow along in your Bibles, you might want to just keep your thumb into Mark 10 because we'll be getting there in just a minute. In, uh, in 1979, Billy Graham um, uh, hosted the late Muhammad Ali at his home in North Carolina. And um, uh, Graham went to the uh, airport, the nearby airport, to pick him up. And um, uh, Muhammad Ali was expecting that this famous uh, Christian preacher was going to, you know, show up. Or maybe he wouldn't even show up, but there would be a chauffeured uh, Rolls Royce that would pick him up. And, you know, he'd be taken to this mansion with crystal chandeliers and gold carpets, is what he said. And uh, Billy Graham shows up at the airport himself driving in his Oldsmobile and uh, drove him back to his uh, log house in the hills, a fairly humble home in the hills. And Muhammad Ali was a little bit shocked by this because he knew, well, Billy Graham's this famous, famous guy. But then after a while, uh, he's recounted as saying, however, when I saw his home, I thought, this is a place a man of God would live. Um, Billy Graham, a, uh, arguably one of the most famous Christians of the 20th century, who spoke to millions and millions of people in packed-out stadiums and prayed for presidents in the White House, did not live in an ostentatious manner at all. He was kind, he was uh, humble and unassuming, and uh, almost as though he viewed this as his life calling and not as a way to gain uh, wealth and exploit power and position. Another really famous uh, Christian of the 20th century was Mother Teresa of Calcutta. And Mother Teresa uh, had zero interest in power and position, but actually spent her life serving the poorest of the poor in the city of Calcutta in India. And um, uh, one of the things that she did was set up and manage homes for people suffering with leprosy and HIV and tuberculosis and so on. And her and her nuns ran mobile clinics and ran orphanages and schools and soup kitchens uh, and so on. She had uh, no interest at all in self-promotion and self-aggrandizement. And so in today's passage, we're going to read about and the next interaction Jesus has with someone. It's actually with two people. It's with James and John, uh, arguably a couple of his closest friends. Um, and this theme of, of position and power uh, that was not a part of those two examples, sort of rears its head, and we get an interesting kind of uh, situation going on. So if you've got your Bible open to Mark uh, chapter 10, starting at verse 32. They were on their road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And he took the twelve aside again, and he began to tell them what was about to happen, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they're going to condemn him to death, and then they'll hand him over to the Gentiles, and they're going to mock him and spit upon him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise again. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I will drink or be baptized in the baptism that I'm to be baptized with? And they replied, we're able. And then Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized 
But to sit at my right hand or my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom you recognize as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them, but it is not so among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to become first among you must be the slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Amen. Uh, that, uh, that verse 30, uh, 45, rather, in, in chapter 10, and many think is the key verse of the whole uh, Gospel of Mark, and I think it, it probably is. So as Jesus closes in on the great city of Jerusalem, he speaks for the third time now to his disciples about his coming death and his coming uh, resurrection. And every time he does, it seems like it goes in one ear and it comes right out the other. And this is no, uh, uh, no different, no exception. The passage begins with Jesus walking ahead of the disciples and some others, we, uh, we're told. And, and we're told that there's this air of both amazement and, and fear. Some of the people were amazed at Jesus and some were actually afraid. And so they're walking there, and I don't know if you ever try to put yourself into gospel stories. I don't know if any of you ever do that. In fact, last night when we had our worship night, uh, Pastor Matthew had, a, had a, a piece of art up on the screen for us and invited us to look at this picture of Jesus uh, healing the sick and, and, and asked us to try to imagine ourselves there and what do we smell and what do we see and what do we feel and which character are we? It's a really interesting spiritual exercise, actually, to try to do that. And when I think about this one, I, I imagine being on a dusty road uh, with the disciples, and there's Jesus just ahead of us. And then when I imagine it, when I picture it, and who knows if I'm right, but when I picture it, I imagine sort of way off in the distance, some dark clouds sort of gathering over Jerusalem. And, and this kind of sense of like eerie foreboding. And, and, and I sort of, you know, if it was a movie, there would be sort of ominous music playing, you know. And, and, and there they are, and, and I imagine this kind of charged or tense atmosphere. You know, like a storm's coming, you kind of can almost feel it in the air. That's what I kind of imagine with this story. And they're amazed, and, and they're, they're afraid. What are they amazed at, and what are they afraid of? Well, we don't really know, except it could be that they're amazed at Jesus' conviction that he needs to walk into the, the lion's den of Jerusalem. Maybe they're kind of amazed that he's willing to do that, or simply amazed at all the things they've seen him doing. Or maybe they're afraid of going into Jerusalem for the very same reason. We're going into the lion's den here. I'm not sure I really want to go with you, and that's what I'm afraid about. Or maybe they're afraid of Jesus' words about what's going to happen. They don't want to see that. Or maybe they don't really know why they're afraid. Maybe they just feel it, they sense it. Maybe they're, they're, they're sort of sensing something in the spiritual realm, like demons screeching around them like a, a bunch of bats or something. I don't know, but they're afraid. There's some of them are afraid and some of them are amazed. And so Jesus takes the 12 aside, maybe because he's picking up on what's going on. I don't know. But he starts to tell them what lies ahead and how they need to be prepared. And he gives quite a bit of detail. He says, when we get there, I'm going to be arrested, and the chief priests are going to condemn me, and then they're actually going to hand me over to the Romans, 
And the Romans are going to do this, this, and this to me. They're going to flog me and, and beat me and, and, and so on. And then they're going to kill me. And after that, uh, three days later, I'm going to be raised again. It's interesting that Jesus not only knows what's going to happen, he knows how it's going to happen. The backdrop for a lot of this, and actually a lot of the passion, is, is uh, in the, the prophet Isaiah, uh, chapters 40 to 55. Uh, in there are these things called the servant songs. Uh, maybe you've read them uh, before. The servant songs play a background role to much of what Jesus does, and particularly as you know, the suffering servant, and here I said that key verse in verse 45 about serving. Uh, it, it lies in the background, and in, in that part of Isaiah, um, the, the central figure of those servant songs is the servant of the Lord, an anointed one, a, mess, a messianic one, who's actually going to suffer and die. And it provides a lot of the backdrop uh, to, to what Jesus is doing. And I said to you a minute ago that it seems like what Jesus says goes in one ear and out the other. And, and here, here's the perfect example. No sooner had Jesus explained what's about to happen into the city, in the city, shared some deeply disturbing things that was about to happen to him. No sooner had this happened than James and John think, this would be a wonderful time for, me to, for us to go and talk to Jesus about how we can muscle our way to the top of this group. Like, what? Jesus is just sharing some terrible things, some ominous things, and they're asking, how do we become crown princes in the kingdom? Like, it's jarring, isn't it? No evidence of their concern for Jesus. No being rocked or dumbfounded into silence. No, they want to know how they can get the greatest seats of power and influence. How do we get to sit at the right and left hand in your kingdom? It's a way of saying, can we become the next most important rulers in your coming kingdom, Jesus? Give us power, give us position, give us influence. The disciples had heard this, this language of suffering before, like I said, three times now. Maybe they thought this was Jesus' way of saying, you know what, it's going to be tough for a bit, but don't worry, we're going to come out on top. Maybe they thought Jesus was using kind of picture language when he talked about suffering, almost like, yeah, we're going to get there. It's going to be a bit tough, but don't worry, guys, we're going to win. Maybe they were thinking that. I, I don't know. I, I doubt it, but perhaps, I'm trying to give them the benefit of the doubt. But either way, whatever the situation is, their concern is not with what's immediately ahead, but with what's down the line. How do we position ourselves best so when the kingdom comes, we're right there, James, right? Right there with Jesus. Earlier on in the gospel, there had been this argument about who was going to be greatest in the kingdom. I guess they didn't really learn their lesson. It was still lurking under the surface. They still had this sort of idea of being glory hunters, that's how they seem to come across. They envision an earthly kingdom built on what they knew of earthly kingdoms. And in fairness to them, they didn't really have any other conception of kingdom that Jesus was talking about. So they imagine politics and earthly power, and they want to be on top. They're, they're some of closest, uh, the closest friends of Jesus. So it might, you might say it's fair for them to wonder if they were going to get the best positions in cabinet, right? the best seats in the house. But Jesus' response is, you have no idea what you're asking. Are you willing to drink the cup that I must drink? Are you willing to be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? And those two things, cup and baptism, when used in certain contexts, 
and when said in a certain way, can actually be metaphors for suffering. And so uh, coming up on the screen for you, Isaiah 51, 17 says this, uh, rouse yourself, rouse yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk at the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl of staggering. There's cup being used in terms of suffering and judgment. And baptism, Psalm 42, 7 coming up for you. Deep calls to deep at the thunder of your cataracts. All your waves and all your billows have gone over me. This idea of baptism in a certain context being plunged down under the chaotic waters. Because for Israelites, often the waters and the sea, they weren't a seafaring people. Um, the seas and the waters were, were places of chaos and danger uh, for them. And so both of those things can be used uh, to speak of suffering. And so Jesus is warning them, are you willing to suffer? And their answer is bold and glib and we don't really understand what we're saying kind of, kind of way, but they say, sure we are, yeah, absolutely, we're prepared. Sign us up, we'll take on a little bit of struggle if it means we're going to be rewarded with position in the kingdom. And Jesus responds by saying, actually, you will drink this cup and you will undergo this baptism, but it's not up to me, and I'm not concerning myself with who's going to sit at the right and left. In other words, he's saying that's the Father's business. It's for whom it's been prepared for. And we know, actually, the disciples did drink the cup and were baptized with the baptism. Um, James is actually, I think, I think, the first disciple to be killed. In Acts chapter 12, it says James, the uh, brother of John, was killed by the sword. That was uh, King Herod, Herod Antipas. Um, John actually is the only disciple that it's, church history says wasn't actually killed, uh, but he you know, died of natural causes. But we know that John ended up on the island of Patmos, and that's where he had those crazy visions that God gave him that became the book of Revelation in our, in our Bibles. And, uh, and so for John as well, he, he, there's no doubt that John uh, suffered as well. And so uh, this stuff came to pass for, for them. There's also a deep irony in the passage as well, though, and, and James and John's request to sit at the right and left of Jesus in his kingdom, when we get to the end of the gospel, when Jesus is crucified and hangs on the cross, there is somebody crucified on his right and there is somebody crucified on his left, and it turns out to be two no-name figures, two um, criminals in the eyes of Rome, and that's an ironic twist on it, I think. If you want to sit at my right and my left, this is what it means. And many theologians have discussed the idea of the cross being actually Jesus' enthronement, or at least the beginning of his enthronement. And we're on good theological ground if we say the cross is not a signal of Jesus' defeat, but actually of his victory over his enemies, over the powers, over the authorities. The cross is the great moment of victory. And then our passage ends with the other 10 disciples who now come on the scene, and they, they clue in to what's going on here with James and John, and they're like, hey, what's going on? How come you guys are asking for the positions of power? We don't get the sense that they're angry because they were being insensitive to Jesus, but probably because they beat them to the punch, and they're jealous. The incident has created disunity and perhaps turmoil in the disciples, and, and it provides Jesus with another one of these teaching opportunities now, like we, uh, I just talked about at the, at the beginning. Jesus helps them to understand the true nature of discipleship. 
They desire to be great, but they need to channel that desire for greatness into humble service. Be great. Be great at serving others. Disciples aren't being shown how to be the last. Do you remember at the end of the passage last week, it said the last will be first and the first will be last. They're not being told how to be last. They're being told how to be first. This is how you become first, by being the servant of everyone else. This kingdom doesn't operate like other kingdoms. It doesn't operate like Rome. This is the upside down kingdom. And and Jesus goes on to talk about how the desire to dominate and take the greatest seats of power is actually thoroughly pagan. Today, we would say worldly. That's what the world chases after. Of course it is. 2,000 years on, our world is no different. It's all about chasing for power and wealth and position and influence and being out for self. The pagans set up seats of power and lord it over others. The disciples are actually taking the pagan rulers, the worldly rulers, as their model. And Jesus is saying, don't take them as your model. Take the suffering servant as your model. And that's where that suffering servant thing kind of lies in the background again. They need to take Messiah Jesus as their true example of greatness. And his model was to give his life as a ransom uh, for many. I started with those examples of of Billy Graham and Mother Teresa, and I used the two of them, not because those are the only people that have ever lived like that, uh, but only because I figured these are two people you would all know. Um, And they're great examples, and there is many, 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 many more examples throughout the world and throughout history um, of people who have not actually used opportunity to uh, for, for self-advancement and, and, and selfish ambition and so on, but rather have found a way to serve and understand their sense of calling. Um, you know, the world represented in Muhammad Ali did not understand why Billy Graham wasn't more ostentatious. They just didn't understand that because they didn't understand that actually for Billy this was his calling and, and not actually anything to do with personal power and position and so on. I don't say that Christians in positions of power and influence are in any way wrong. We need people who are Christians in those positions. It's not about the position itself. It's about the attitude and the posture and the act of service. And in fact, people in those places can be incredible witnesses as they use those positions to serve others. And especially uh, to, to not be intoxicated by the power, but by serving others, and especially others who, who maybe are, are, are ordinarily... Um, adversely affected by those power structures and become victims of those power structures, have people in those positions actually serving them is an incredible witness. Tremendous good can be done from believers in those kind of places. So by way of application today, uh, this is what preachers call low-hanging fruit. I didn't have to work too hard for the application today. I didn't have to dig too hard. It's pretty self-evident, I think, uh, what the application is today. So I just want to spend a couple of minutes with you here uh, in saying that if our desire is to follow and to imitate Jesus, uh, we ought to be sure that we're finding ways to serve other people and not chasing after selfish ambition. Pretty easy application. Not easy to do necessarily, but, but, but easy to understand. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. said, everybody on planet Earth can be great because everybody can serve. 
And to quote him, he says, you don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and verb agree to serve. You don't have to know Plato and Aristotle. You don't have to know Einstein's theory of relativity. You don't have to know the second theory of thermodynamics and physics. You actually only need a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love. Martin Luther was saying that um, to be truly great, to be the greatest in your field is a really hard thing to be because only one person can be that. But everybody on planet Earth can be great if we understand what true greatness is because everybody can serve. It's the upside-down kingdom. So my application for you today is, is there some way in which the Lord is calling you uh, to serve in your um, sphere of influence in your life? Is the Lord calling you in some way to serve? And if you're somebody who struggles with that idea of power, they say the, the three things that we struggle with most are money, sex, and power. If yours is power, uh, if you love position, if you love to grasp hold of position, if you like people to look up to you, uh, if you like to be exalted in the eyes of others, if that's your temptation, it's especially important for you then to find ways to serve that nobody else sees. That's a great way to fight against that particular thing, to serve in a way that nobody will notice and nobody will actually say, oh, well done for serving. That spiritual discipline will be especially beneficial to you. So, so that's the first application. And secondly, uh, this is not so much of an application as I just want to flag at the end here um, the piece about Jesus dying as a ransom for, for many. And it says that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And the idea of a ransom is to pay some, for someone's release, right? That's what a ransom is. It implies that we're enslaved, and it's impossible for, a pay to, for us to pay for our own release, so we need someone to pay for us. And so Jesus' death is not a tragic accident, but a supreme act of sacrifice for humankind. Jesus has ransomed you. That means he's actually bought you at a price. He's paid a price for you. And not only does that denote your freedom now then, not only does it denote your worth to him, but it actually means he owns you. You're owned by Jesus. And as you are owned by him and belong to him and desire to imitate him, as you do that in service of others, you actually point the person you're serving to the one who empowers and calls you to do it. And that's called kingdom living. And I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up, uh, please. We're going to go in to, to sing a closing song. And the, the ransom price was more expensive than we can ever imagine. And so let's respond then by singing about that, um, that very thing. Amen. Why don't you stand?